Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your co-host, David Rothkopf, joined every week as we are this time of the week by Mark Polymeropoulos to discuss matters having to do with the intelligence community on our spy show. Happy New Year, Mark. How are you doing? David, Happy New Year. I am back in Northern Virginia. Uh, you know, we always talk about my usual, my crazy travels. I was up in Maine for a wedding for the last uh, uh, three, four nights, and uh, and I had too much lobster. I am not having lobster anymore. I will tell you that I think the first three or four meals was all lobster, and I'm done. And I'm going to go back to my favorite place, and you know where that is. The Vienna this Inn, week. which makes That's everybody right, feel Inn. like they've had too much lobster or something. Um, uh, well, uh, I can't say that going to Maine at the end of December sounds like my first choice. I did see some pictures of you at the beach. What was that? It was cold. My wife was had a giant jacket on. She looked like a lion. Yeah, but one of these but Canada you, goose jackets. Were you in someplace warm and? Oh yeah, we were in the Bahamas before that. Yeah. I've been bopping around. That was fun. Yeah, now Bahamas. That sounds yeah. that sounds great. Well, it's the beginning of the year. It's time to get down to business. To do so, we've got a great guest with us. Glenn Korn is a 34-year veteran of the U.S. intelligence and foreign affairs communities, and has served over 20 years abroad, including tours in Russia. Turkey, Central Asia, South Asia, and the Middle East. He has also held senior leadership positions within the intelligence community in the U.S. and is a graduate of multiple specialized training programs in the fields of intelligence, security, and executive leadership. Happy New Year, Glenn. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you for for joining us. I will give the honor of the first question to Mr. Palomaropoulos. There you go. Well, this is a, a delight to have uh, uh, Glenn Korn on the show. You know, we've had multiple kind of former Intel community, um, you know, members, uh, uh, both, you know, rank and file case officers, analysts, some senior leaders. Um, Glenn is absolutely unique because he is one of the probably, I will say this, I'll embarrass him, probably the smartest guy I met in my, uh, in my 26 years. He was a 34-year veteran, but in my 26 years, um, because he did something that uh, uh, to me was quite unique. And it's not always the case. He really immersed himself in the in the countries um, and the peoples where he served. And so, whether 
you know, he's uh, uh, in, in Moscow, um, whether he's in Lebanon, whether he's in, uh, in Turkey, um, you know, he learned the languages, he spoke them brilliantly, he learned the culture, he learned the people, he learned the food. And to me, that was kind of the, the quintessential role of, of what a CIA case officer should be all about. So, so it's a delight to have Glenn here. And, and I will tell you, 2024, in my mind, you know, so there's, there's a lot of focus, you know, in, in, the, in the media on what's happening in Gaza. But I think the more important foreign policy story remains Russia, Ukraine. And so Glenn is going to uh, be able to answer some or give us his insights today. So let me just kind of start off um, with that in terms of, of your experience your view about Russia and Vladimir Putin you you lived there for some time you speak the language and i guess the question is let, let's talk about the russian mindset you know how has the us government gotten this right and wrong over the years it seems to me we've we have not always assessed putin correctly but what's it like living in russia how, how do we deal with the russian government and you know and what's the future these are of course questions which could we could take hours to discuss but glenn off to you well, thank you for the kind introduction, Mark, and um, very important question. It's a little bit difficult to answer because Russia is so complex. I think it was one of our former ambassadors, Charles Bolin, who said that, show me anyone that drinks a bottle of champagne and says he's not drunk or says he's an expert on Russia, and I'll show you a liar. And, you know, I throughout my career, I, there were a lot of people that claimed that they were Russia experts that I came across, uh, I think there are very few of those. Even people in Russia don't understand their own country. It's, it's so, you know, complicated. Uh, Putin, <clears throat> I think, represents an element of Russian society that was very humiliated in the early 90s. You know, I served there. In fact, I was in St. Petersburg when Putin was there. I was participating in meetings that he was in. He was the deputy mayor of the city of St. Petersburg for foreign relations. So the consulate where I was working had a lot of dealings with him. Uh, he, at the time, you know, my sense was he was part of this group of Russians that felt very humiliated and angry that the Soviet Union had collapsed. Uh, they had expectations that the United States was going to come in and make them into a, you know, I, I don't think that they were dreaming about democracy. They were dreaming about material um, comforts. And the things that we had in the West. And I always tell the story. I, you know, I studied in Moscow in the 80s uh, as a college student. And one day, some of the other the Soviet students I were with, I was with this in 1987, is during Glasnost and, Gorb and uh, Gorbachev's perestroika. And some of the students told me, you know, Glenn, we're going to have everything that you have in the United States, like MTV, sports cars, uh, you know, nice clothes. We're going to have all of that thanks to perestroika. And I said, really, and how long is it going to take, you think? And they said, oh, five years maximum. And I remember saying to myself then, like, this is completely unrealistic because the country at the time, you know, if you're in Russia, the stagnation and, you know, the economic situation, the labor situation was not very good. The corruption and bureaucracy was very stagnant. I mean, corruption was vibrant, but, you know, the economy was stagnant. And I just thought to myself, like, you know, what's the, I don't know who said it, what what uh, philosopher or uh, famous person said it, but, you know, happiness is where a reality meets expectation. And the expectation was very high for people like Putin, and the reality was completely different. And so in the 90s, they became even more bitter, and they blamed the failure of Russia to transition uh, to become a market economy 
you know, stable country where there was wealth that they thought that they deserved. And by the way, they have the potential to have uh, quite a good economy, but for for many reasons that are internal to Russia, they just can't seem to do that. Uh, and Mark, we've worked in a lot of countries where we hear, we hear that same story, right? I mean, the potential's there, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen. And they blame the United States. You know, they, they blamed uh, the United States and the Jews. And it was like a ping pong ball, you know, when I served in the late 80s, uh, late 90s there, that's what I started to hear. You know, the United States lied to us. They cheated us. Um, this is all a big lie. Or, you know, you'd hear like things like, okay, Yeltsin is not really Russian, he's Jewish. And the one thing that started to change in my last tour there was that the the uh, brunt of their accusations started to become the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians that now were the, you know, on the news, nightly news channels, like Monday, Monday, it was America, Tuesday, it was, you know, the Ukrainians. And I used to joke with our Ukrainian colleagues at the Ukrainian embassy, I say, thanks for taking some of the heat off us. But it's obviously not a joke now, right? I mean, uh, the country is being bombarded. We saw, again, uh, over the new year, the Russians went after civilian targets, um, killing a, a large number of Ukrainian civilians in just barbaric assault on on Ukraine. And I think this is all because Putin is scared to death that Ukraine was moving to the West and that his own people were going to see that the Ukrainians could actually do what Russia didn't do under his rule because he came to power in the late 90s, early 2000s with the promise that he'd make Russia stable, economically strong, you know, a country to be reckoned with. And he did that up until about 2012, 13, and then everything started to go backwards, especially 2014 when he invaded uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine and occupied Crimea. And then things started to go backwards. And so the last time I worked in Russia, I had, a lot of Russians would tell me they were very frustrated with his leadership because they thought that he was, his ego was was more important to him than actually the welfare of the Russian people. And I think Putin realized that he needed to stop Ukraine from moving closer to the West, to the EU, obviously NATO, which he's scared to death of. Um, and so he decided that now was his moment. And, you know, I can give you my thoughts on why he did it, what he did in, in uh, February 2022. But he he realized he, or he thought he had to do something before it was too late. And what we got is a horrible war, barbaric war on the levels of like the First World War. And the Russians have not been very successful. But unfortunately, uh what I, what I see here is people don't talk about the problems really that the Russians are having as much as they talk about the problems the Ukrainians are having. And that's partially because the Ukrainians are generally an open society. And there's a lot of reporting coming out of Ukraine on some of the challenges they're facing. I don't think enough is done to talk about the problems the Russians are having and the fact that Putin is not in a win position. He wants the world to think he is, that he can wait everybody out, but I personally don't think he can. Um, well, let me pick up on that. And uh, because it's early in the new year, I'll start with an easy question, but then I'll follow up to something a little more challenging. Um, of course, the Russian elections are coming up in March, and I just want to get your prediction as to who will win. Uh, I'm going to go on a limb here. Yes. <laughs> I think uh, could be Putin or Putin. Putin? You know, there, there's a joke There's a joke going around among some Russians that says that you know they asked Peskov, Peskov Who's going to win the election? And Peskov says, I don't know which Putin will win. Yeah, well, 
I guess that's a big question for all of us. Uh, We know that uh, the uh, Russian elections are actually the second most important elections on Putin's calendar for the year, uh, because he realizes that if the U.S. elections go the other way and his um, uh, friend Donald Trump becomes the president of the United States, U.S. policy towards Ukraine will change dramatically. We've already seen some harbingers of that with the activities of the House Republicans with regard to refunding Ukraine. Uh, so for Putin, his own election isn't the existential challenge. Our election is the existential challenge. Um, as uh, someone who is very familiar with Russia's uh, handling of issues like this, what do you think that means we should expect from Russia here in the U.S.? Okay, thanks for the question. Um, first, I think that, you know, I want to be careful. I don't think that Putin considers Donald Trump his friend. I know that's the narrative among many people. I didn't see that when I was in Moscow. Uh, I don't think he thinks that anybody is his friend. He wants to use the elections here to drive more uh, division in our country, to exploit the division that exists. That's what they did in 2016. They very cunningly and effectively tapped into frustrations among certain segment of U.S. society and and uh, inflamed, promoted those feelings, and then tried to impact the elections. I don't think they had much success. They they had success in terms of doing stuff, but I don't think that they swung the election in favor of one candidate or another. That's my personal view. And um, he they'll do it again. They're you know I'm sure I just wrote an article about this. They've been doing it since 1917. They did it. You know they've done it over and over again. It's you know they offered uh, a, a presidential candidate in the in the uh, 60s money to support his candidacy against the sitting president. They offered to help Ronald Reagan. They offered to help Gerald Ford get reelected. And so the Russians, like in terms of election meddling and election interference, this is part of the playbook in 1917 when the Bolshevik revolution or coup happened in uh, Russia, they tried to spread revolution around the world and they were doing it in the United States and they've never stopped. How effective they've been, I think is a, is a question. I think personally here in the US it's become we we made it much more than it was, and I, I you know I I uh, I regret that because we gave them way more credit than we should have given them. We gave them much more attention in terms of publicly and politically than we should have. We should have been focusing on our own problems instead of blaming the Russians uh, for a lot of the problems we have. On the issue of support for Ukraine, I you know I mean it was the Trump administration that was the one that approved lethal assistance to the Ukrainians for the first time. I, I tell the Ukrainians I speak with, don't listen to a lot of the stuff that's going on in the U.S. media. It's an election year. People are definitely going to say things to scare people into voting for them or someone else, you know, not to vote for someone else. But I personally think that one, uh, Congress will vote to provide support for the Ukrainians or continued support and the Israelis, and they should and they will. And I think that uh, no matter who wins the election, there will be continued support for the Ukrainians. So, how can you say uh, that? I saw how, ca- how can you say that? There's absolutely no evidence to support that. Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. Throughout the time of Donald Trump's presidency, th- Russia was in Ukraine. He was kissing up to Trump. 
He may not be his friend, but he is the useful idiot everybody spoke about. He didn't push back. The lethal assistance was minimal that we provided for them. It was nothing like what Biden and the and NATO has provided. Are, are you actually suggesting that somehow Trump will carry forward the policies in Ukraine with regard to Russia um, that Biden and NATO have carried forward, even though Trump has said he wanted to disband NATO, even though he has said that again on the campaign trail? Okay, David, I, I'm not going to argue with you about internal domestic U.S. politics. I have a different view from, from where I sat and what I saw. I this saw is the, I'm not speaking about opinions. Wait, I'm speaking about facts. Let me speak about facts. The, the Trump administration did quite a number of things to send a very strong message to the to the, the Putin administration, to the Russians, during their time in office. They took specific actions to respond to Russian uh, malign influence activities. I saw it. I witnessed it. Uh, and in terms of your comment that Putin is, you know, he sees Trump as his useful idiot, uh, I, you know, I'm going to be careful to call anybody someone else's useful idiot. It's a term that's thrown around. I, I am, I, you know, I know if you think back to 2017 after Trump was elected, when Putin gave his State of the Union address, what did he do in front of the Russian people, in front of the world? He got up and he showed Kinjal missiles striking a target in Florida that was at the approximate location of Mar-a-Lago. And he did that to send a message to the United States that he was he could threaten us with his hypersonic weapons, which, by the way, the, the Ukrainians just announced, I heard this in September when I was in Kiev, and they just announced over the weekend that they shot down 10 of those undefeatable hypersonic missiles uh, with 30-year-old technology. So God bless the Ukrainians for doing that. And this should be a reminder to people that the Russians are not as capable or their weapon system are not as, are not as great as some people thought they were. And of course, as the Russians want to promote them. So, you know, from what I saw, practically speaking, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to get into this because then I would have to talk about stuff which I cannot talk about, but I don't agree that one party is better or worse for Ukraine. Uh, I don't agree that one candidate is better for worse. You know, the Biden administration has done a lot, but that's because they were pushed to do that when, when Putin upped the ante and he invaded Ukraine, or he expanded his invasion of Ukraine. In 2014, when they invaded Ukraine the first time, and they occupied Crimea, we really did not do much in response. Then we could talk about like what the cycle was that led Putin, in my opinion, to think that he could continue to push. Uh, and I would say that if we pull you support from Ukraine, and hopefully we can agree on this, David, if we do pull support for the Ukrainians, then we're going to face a, huge, a bigger problem from Putin and other people of his ilk around the world who are going to think that they can continue to push on our interests and our allies without any real consequence. We, so, we, certainly, can, we certainly can agree on that, um, uh, although I, I suspect not much else, but that's the benefit of a program like this to hear other points of view. And let me uh, 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 support that idea further by turning to Mark for the next question. Sure. And so, you know, one of the things, just a, a comment on, because I think in, in some ways, you know, both of you are right. Uh, uh, I, I, I there's always been, somebody uh, like that in every crowd. Well, no, no, but in this, I've been certainly have been very critical of statements of, of Trump. We're not getting into domestic politics. Fine, but one of the very strange parts about you know my last two years at the agency 
um, essentially, certainly in the Trump administration, but having you know very hardline national security advisors like a John Bolton um, push us to do to be quite aggressive against the Russians when his boss, President Trump, was saying you know when the rhetoric um, was much different. And so it, it is a it is, I, and I've written about this too. It was a it's a kind of a wildly confusing time where well, I, I have to say, as somebody who's written a book about it and it was interviewed all of those people in the Trump team. One of the reasons that there was a difference uh, between the Trump rhetoric and the Bolton rhetoric was that Bolton, at a certain point, decided not to talk to Trump about it. And and and, and, and Bolton was you, and Bolton certainly gave us uh, a lot of tools. Uh, no, to, no, I'm to, just to there were uh, there were good important. people yeah. in the Trump administration who were trying to do the right thing, but one of the ways they found they had to ad- adapt to do the right thing was not to loop in the president. Let me let me switch just to to uh, for Glenn. You recently made a trip to Ukraine. And I think that was you know, and, and you and you wrote about it. I think that was really important. Um, and there's there's kind of two parts to this question. One, of course, is what do you think is going to happen um, there on the battlefield? But number two, one of the things that has concerned me, and it has not been reported enough in the, in the U.S. media, is that the internal Ukrainian political situation is getting a little more dicey. Um, where uh, where Zelensky does have challenges to his his power, things are not you know we we tend to kind of romanticize um, Ukraine. I certainly have been guilty of that, but I think you know tell us about your trip a little bit because there are internal pol- political dynamics which I think may have an effect on the battlefield. His, for example, Zelensky's you know relationship with his military commanders. Um, g- give us a sense of what that trip was like and what you learned. Uh, well, I mean, it was a, it was. Fascinating because at the time, this is uh, September, early September this year, or no, sorry, last year now, uh, you know, er, pretty much everyone we spoke with, and we spoke with a lot of senior officials in the government um, and some people out of government who are in the opposition to Zelensky, they were all very supportive of Zelensky and and also willing to uh, delay elections because of the wartime situation. So there was almost a, you know, a real strong sense of unity behind Zelensky. What I've heard, I haven't been back since then, but some of the people I know that go back and forth have told me that's beginning to crack a little bit. I think Zelensky has got to be very careful not to be to be seen as someone who has dictatorial tendencies, who doesn't want to let go of power when the time comes. That's difficult when you're you know facing a war with a country like Russia. Um, there are, you know, some people are concerned that he is going to become another Putin. I don't personally think that will happen, but it's something that the Ukrainians have to be aware of. What I was very impressed by the Ukrainians, the members of parliament, people in in his administration, uh, civil society, what they were all talking about was making the reforms to Ukrainian society, to civil society, to the government that need to be made without waiting for the war to end. So they're doing a lot of things while they're in a wartime situation, which most countries I don't think could do. And... uh, it's on one on the one hand, it's very impressive and it's kind of inspiring because they're not making excuses by saying, you know, we're we're fighting the Russians, so we have to delay this until the war is over. They're they're rewriting laws. They're um, trying to implement new laws. They, you know, Zelensky started a new anti-corruption campaign, which is very important because you know Ukraine has a challenge with corruption. In my my assessment that was built into the Soviet system by the Russians, actually the Russian system during the Russian empire and used very effectively by the Russians and other parts of the former Soviet Union and in Ukraine for years to to maintain their influence 
if not overtly, then uh, covertly. But the Ukrainians are tackling this, and they're tackling it while a war is going on. And that is, you know, they should be uh, supported in what they're doing. Um, but there are, there do seem to be cracks. And what worries me is that the the political division here will lead to political division in Europe. It's already actually in Europe in some areas. If you look at Slovakia, if you look at uh, Hungary, obviously Turkey, which is Russia's number two largest trading partner right now. Um, so within NATO, there's cracks and, and Putin wants to exploit all that. And if he does that, um, if he's successful at that, that'll be another big problem for Zelensky and the government, because I think the Ukrainian people uh, are looking into the world, or at least to the West, for their support. And when we were there, one of the uh, commanders of one of the services told us during the, the first months of fighting in 2022, he said, you know, our troops, when they were outnumbered and outgunned by the Russians, the morale was pretty low until we got one U.S. weapon system. And even though we may have been like, you know, one to 10 numbers in favor of the Russians, the morale in our units went up like sky high and our guys were willing to fight, you know, without question. And so you got to keep up the support. And we're not asking any Americans to go die in, the, in this. This is not a forever war. You know, a lot of people here talk about the forever wars. So they said it's not a forever war for the United States. We're not asking Americans to go die. We know you did that in Afghanistan and Iraq and other wars. What we're asking for is just the material support and, and the moral support. Um, and that was also ver very interesting to hear and I think important for Americans to hear. You know, I, I do some public speaking on this topic. And what I hear from people around the U.S. is that they're actually not opposed to continuing to support the Ukrainians. They just want to know how the, 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 the support is being um, managed. Um, they want to know what we're doing on some other issues. And, you know, we talk about the issue of the Ukraine support, Israel support, Taiwan support. Now it's tied to the, to the border issue. A lot of Americans say that they want to know that the border issue is being taken care of. And so I'm not surprised that it's gotten those, those issues have now come together in Congress, but I do think that the Congress will make a deal and they come back in a session and that the Ukrainians will get the support they need. And that will also look at, uh, I mean, the, the Taiwanese will get support. The Israelis will continue to get support and we'll look at the border. We'll take care of the border. We need to. And the United States can do it. You know, the president said in his state of the union on the Ukraine issue, when he talked to the nation that, you know, we've, we're Americans, we can do anything and we can, and we will. Okay, well, this is the point in the show where we take a break and we uh, uh, tell all of you who are listening, thank you for listening and Happy New Year and welcome to the uh, world of the DSR Network. Uh, we also say that those of you who are non-members will not be able to continue farther listening because we have a little bit of bonus content in each episode just for our members. And this is an excellent time. It is going to be a hugely eventful year. We have experts from across the political spectrum and from different um, uh, uh, perspectives of all sorts uh, joining us to help you understand what's going to happen. Uh, and so we would encourage you to become a member. But if you're not a member, for now, we're going to have to say bye-bye. And if you are a member, we'll have to say stand by.